Uh, we're about to drop into the middle of an Old Testament story, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. Several weeks ago, Hope began a series of sermons on the book of Exodus. Well, mostly, we're, we're focusing on the life of Moses in the Old Testament and the people of Israel. And this week, we're accompanying Moses and ancient Israel in the midst of their journey into the wilderness. They're at the desert of sin, far from Egypt, but farther still from their destination. They're on their way from Egypt to what's now modern-day Israel or Palestine, what, what the Bible calls Canaan. And so they're not quite halfway. They're still pretty close to Egypt, and they've got a lot longer to go. And that's sort of where we're dropped into the story. But let me read the scripture passage for us. It comes from the book of Exodus chapter 16. We're just going to read two selections from it, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 22 through 30. So Exodus 16, 1 through 5, 22 through 30. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had accompanied from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the, in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And we're going to skip forward to verse 22. On the sixth day, they did gather day, twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, and as Moses commanded them, it did not stink, and there were, worm, there were no worms in it. And so Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found no bread. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey straight from the honeycomb. Would you pray for these words to us this morning with me? Father, um, thank you for words, um, and I pray that they would be nourishing to us. Uh, they would give us strength. Would we experience their sweetness? Would you help us... Um, to feed on your living words. And Lord Jesus, would you meet us? You are the word of God. And we pray that you would meet us wherever we are with you this morning. And would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? Would you lift up our gaze to behold you 
and to become more like you. And would you not let us leave this room the same people as we entered? Would you do this by your spirit, through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. So I come from a long line of committed TV watchers. I don't know if anyone can relate to this. This means, among other things, a lot of my childhood memories are, are mixed in uh, random scenes from TV shows. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. One television scene that I remember, uh, maybe too well, comes from the TV show The Simpsons. Uh, in this scene, it's more of a series of scenes, really. The cartoon dad, Homer Simpson, is at his job at the, at the Springfield nuclear power plant, and he walks by a vending machine. And suddenly he's thirsty. Mmm. He wants a soda so badly right now at all costs. But when he turns out his pockets, they're completely empty, and he doesn't find any change. But Homer won't be denied. <laughs> and he looks to the left, and he looks to the right, and then he chuckles to himself, and he wiggles his fingers in the air, and with a cry of, time to take it to the man, he reaches his arm through the slot where the soda comes in, up into the machine, and grasps uh, a can of soda. After lots of grunting, after lots of wiggling, lots of uh, whispers of a little more, he closes his hand over the soda can, triumphant. And then as he tries to pull it down, he realizes that his arm is stuck. His arm is wedged tight in the, the Buzz Cola machine, and, it's so, and then the scene shifts, and all of a sudden, Homer, in an act of, of sheer willpower and, and surprising strength, drags the Buzz Cola vending machine with him to the nuclear power plant phone, and then he, uh, unfortunately, right next to the phone is a candy vending machine. <laughs> and so Homer looks at the candy vending machine, and all of a sudden, he's very hungry. Mmm. <laughs> He wants candy so badly right now at all costs. And all of a sudden, his other arm shoots up through the gap, and he grasps a bag of candy. And both arms are now stuck in different vending machines. Scene flips forward, and all of a sudden, it shows Homer. Somehow, he's got a, a phone nestled between his cheek and his shoulder, and he's calling his wife. And he says, Marge, this may be hard to believe, but I'm trapped inside two vending machines. Well, time elapses, and soon there's caution tape, and a policeman, and firemen, and like construction workers, even a few nuclear lab technicians with clipboards, and one construction worker fires up the circular saw, buzz saw, and is about to cut off Homer's arms when another technician with a flashlight looks up the machine and then looks at Homer and asks, Are you holding on to the can? You see, Homer was holding on to the can and the bag of candy, and his refusal to let go was the reason that he was stuck in the two machines. (laughs) And the reason that this episode struck me so much is that, yes, it's funny, but it's more than that. It's saying something wise about the human heart. Specifically, the Simpsons episode shows us what I do with my hungry heart. How I grasp at the wrong things and how hard it is for me to let go of those things that I believe will satisfy my hunger. In our deep hunger, we make plans. 
plans for our lives, right? A plan that has full of good things. But, you know, we have certain careers that we have to have. We have a kind of family that we need. We have a specific house and country club membership and group of friends in mind. But what happens when a part or all of that plan fails? Or what happens when the plan fails to satisfy? Why won't we just let it go? These are the kind of questions that God is forcing us to do business with in this passage this morning. It's a story about our spiritual ancestors, ancient Israel, crying out in hunger. They have dreams. They have about a promised land. And they have a plan to get to that promised land. But it feels like the plan is failing. They are hungry. But they are hungry for more than just food. They are in the wilderness of sin. But look at how God addresses their, this deep hunger, this deep hunger in the ancient Israelites and also deep within our own hearts. God doesn't deny the existence of our hunger. It's so important. God doesn't say, he does not say it's wrong to desire. God's line to us is not quit being so sensitive. Just stop it. Stop being hungry. And also at the same time, God does not tell us Feed your heart on anything at all, anything you like. You know, anything is going to do the trick. Pick your pleasure or your achievement, and whatever you do, don't let it go. God doesn't say that either. Instead, God honors our deepest hungers and points out the problem about what we so often do with those hungers, how we so often misdirect them. And so in Exodus chapter 16, God redirects our grasping hearts to Jesus. But how does this story tell us that? What what about Exodus 16 shows us what God does with our hearts? The Israelites in this scene act as a mirror for us. They reflect where we so often look to satisfy our hungers. We so often look backwards in nostalgia or forwards in anxiety. And this scene also directs us how to look in the present to Jesus. And so all this is kind of, all these thoughts are sort of organized in our sermon outline this morning in your bulletin and projected behind me into three points. First, verses one through five describe a people looking backwards in nostalgia. Second, verses 22 through 30 describe a people looking forwards in anxiety. And third and finally, verses 4 and 5 and 29 and 30 suggest looking in the present to Jesus. Let's start with verses 1 through 5 and how our hungers can cause us to misremember the past. In order to understand the nostalgia going on here, we have to explore what drove ancient Israel and what drives us to that place. What causes Israel and us to direct our hungry hearts back to the past? Verse 1 tells us it's our present circumstances. That's what drives us. Look at verse 1 with me. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness or desert of sin. So picture it with me. There's a column of smoke by day, 
a column of fire by night that God is leading his people, leading the Israelites, and he's led them from paradise on earth, Elam, to a food desert, Sin. Look at, if you look just one verse earlier from our passage, chapter 15, verse 27, tells us that Elam, where Israel was previously encamped, Elam had 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. It was a literal oasis in a barren land. But now, Israel has been led to its newest location by God. And its newest location is back to the barrenness. There's nothing to eat here. It's a wasteland. But not only was Israel's place frustrating, so was the timing. The length of time it had taken Israel just to even get here uh, was was long. Verse 1 tells us it was about a month, a month's time since they had left Egypt and were now in the wilderness of sin. And that feels like a long time, doesn't it? That's a long road trip to be for a month. But I think it's just helpful to realize that there's this additional anger behind this month-long road trip. And it's this. It ordinarily, on foot, would have taken 7 to 11 days to get from Egypt to what is now modern Israel. And they're in well over day 28. Okay, so let's just kind of make this in our own terms. Imagine you're taking a four-hour car trip to Savannah, Georgia. And you're an hour 16. And you're only at Columbia, South Carolina. <laughs> or better, you've, you've signed up for a week-long backpacking trip. And you're in week four. And you're only at the turn, not even at the turnaround point. <laughs> That's their situation that they're living in. But look at what the good and hangry Israelites do. They grumble. And we can appreciate Israel's honesty here, what they're saying. They're hungry and they're angry and they're lonely and they're tired. But what they're saying, I'm hungry and your leadership stinks, those aren't requests. Those are complaints, right? They're not lament prayers like we just prayed about the Nashville shooting. They're not directed to God prayers that sort of trust that God cares and that he hears. These are actually instead rebellious grumblings. They're not directed to God, they're directed to friends and family about God and how uncaring he is. Then, still seething with anger at God, the Israelites turn their hunger towards the past. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Verse three, And of course, that is a complete fantasy, not reality, (laughs) okay? In slavery in Egypt, Israel did not have meat by the bucket load. They were given bricks without straw to build pyramids, right? They weren't fed well. Their infant sons were fed into the Nile in order to kill them. But notice how God and Pharaoh have kind of subtly changed places in the hearts of the Israelites in the wilderness, God is not just uncaring. He's now brought us into the wilderness to kill this entire assembly with hunger. And so this hunger is deeper than for food. And that's important to recognize because the Israelites, after all, if you read the earlier story, have taken all of their livestock with them into the wilderness. They had plenty of food. 
This isn't about just being physically satisfied. This is a heart-deep hunger. It's about feeling needy. It's about feeling neglected. It's about being vulnerable and in our vulnerability getting angry. In our anger, we can turn our minds back to the things we know don't satisfy us. We have to misremember the past. All of a sudden, slavery's emptiness becomes freedom's fullness. The best friends that we used to have in that place, there, that place there was when my family was helpful and supportive. That place there was a better way of life than I have now. I should move back there. That drug or drink, that binge or that purge, that old romantic flame or that feeling you get when you go dark mode online or in your schedule and you just disappear for a while and you do what's wrong but it feels so right. The way nostalgia, tissue papers over the sleeplessness and the stress and the stomach ulcers I felt when I worked so many hours, so many days in a row to get ministry glory. (laughs) Or really just to not disappoint anyone in the name of Jesus. And so we begin to see the difficulty of freedom. You see, that what the wilderness of sin taught, what it teaches us, is that we're all addicts, like ancient Israel. We can be taken out of slavery in an instant. You know, we can move places, we can say no, but so often it's a much longer process to take the slavery out of us, out of our own hearts. And really, verses 22 through 30 just highlight another tendency that we all have in learning how to live free. Here we see the other wrong direction our hearts grasp for in our hunger. and our deep God-given hunger for something more, we can reach forwards in anxiety. That's our second main point this morning. As I talked about in the very beginning, God responds in a surprising way to our deep hunger and the grumbling it can produce. And we have to kind of go back a bit to catch this, but in verses four and five, we have to hear God's plan. And here's his plan. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather daily. And this six-day piece was so that when they, got, they didn't have to go out and gather on the seventh day, they got twice as much on the sixth day, if that makes sense. And like, given the fact that uh, the Israelites were stirring a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and had just basically called God a merciless killer, this seems more than fair, doesn't it? Far more than fair for what he's doing, what he's offering here, okay? God reacts to that scorn by raining down bread from heaven. It's amazing. And I hope it's obvious to say here that God's action in this circumstance is the polar opposite of how Israel has characterized God to be. God isn't some cruel taskmaster like Pharaoh. He's a beyond kind heavenly father. And so we should be shocked by what happens later in the story. Verses 20 and then verses 27 through 28. Listen to verse 20 first. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of the bread until morning 
and it bred worms and it stank. What's going on there? Some, anxious, some Israelites were anxious about not getting their daily bread tomorrow, and so they just decided to stockpile, right? They're like, I'm going to take extra, and I'm going to hide it in the corner of my tent, and then the next day I'm going to open it up, and, and I'll be taken care of. But what happens? It rots. And then there's verses 27 through 28. God's people struggled to trust God would provide just enough each day, but they also struggled to believe God would pro- provide just enough each week. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found no bread. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will we refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And really, this is just a description of the spiritual roots of anxiety. Your anxiety and my anxiety. Anxiety is complicated, I want to be honest. It's complicated in a lot of different ways. There is a a social component, there is an emotional component, there's a physical component to anxiety, but there also certainly mixed in with all of those things is a spiritual component to anxiety. These scenes depict anxiety as a fear for the future. A fear for my future, a fear for my loved one's future, and even a fear for the world's future. And as someone who struggles with anxiety, I can relate to this fear. Like several of you, I've had experienced some really difficult moments, not just days, but weeks in my life, right? I've had cancer. I've had friends betray me. I've had family members get terminal disease diagnoses. My jobs have gone sideways. And I've experienced a childhood that felt emotionally all over the place, incredibly unpredictable. And so what has my reaction been to that fear? I'm like, what, what those experiences, I'm like trying to see around corners all the time. I don't know if you do this, I'm kind of going, I'm gonna outplan tomorrow, I'm gonna overprepare for a work conversation or a family dynamic or to meet my basic needs. My mind is racing all the time with if-then situations or, or that could be scenarios about when people behave badly or the world turns out to fail me yet again. <laughs> I had a counselor who loves me tell me uh, that I live in Charlotte like I'm living in Fallujah during the Iraq War. <laughs> he said, you are so hypervigilant. It's like there's an enemy, it's life and death around every corner, Sid, <laughs> for you. And that's a little too true. <laughs> but the failure of the attempts to gather extra bread in our, in our passage in this worry for tomorrow shows us the solution to our heart anxiety and what it's not. Our solution to our heart anxiety is not just another life hack. It's not just another self-optimization system. The solution is trusting in God to provide for us, not just today, but tomorrow. And I know that sounds very simple, so let me kind of complicate it a little bit. Let's look at Tim Chester and the way he puts it. In the desert, God is schooling his people how to trust him with daily trust. This is so very helpful when we're in the midst of a crisis. Jesus says, tomorrow is my worry, mine. Therefore, we do not have to worry about how we will cope in three months' time. We can just take one day at a time. We trust God for today, and we trust that he will enable us to trust him tomorrow. And in three months' time, God doesn't give grace today for tomorrow. In other words, 
we turn our hungry hearts away from a future set of circumstances and we turn them instead to Jesus in the present. And that's our third and final point this morning. Hopefully we're beginning to see that God is what God is doing, what he's up to in our lives and in the lives of ancient Israel. He's redirecting our grasping hearts, isn't he? But how? How is he doing this? Way, way back in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, the very beginning of our passage, we're told the reason for the wilderness and why God chooses to deliver his bread daily and weekly in this kind of odd rhythm. It says this, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And we hear that word test, and we kind of go bonkers, right? We think, oh boy, that's the God that I'm worried about. But listen to what the, the word test does not mean in the Bible. This test does not qualify the Israelites for God, okay? This is not a test like the bar exam. This is not a test like the SAT to get into college. This is not a soccer tryout test. <laughs> and at the same time, it's also not a test to disqualify the Israelites and us. It's not like an IRS audit or a pass-fail exam about whether we stay in school or not or, or pass-fail class. Instead, Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us that God's test in the wilderness is to teach us two things, what we want and how to want God more. Look at, verse, uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 with me. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was, what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let, your hunger, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you know the man does not live by bread alone, but the man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The wilderness causes us to let go of what our hungry hearts have clamped down on. Whether that's sort of like a past that we, we kind of falsely remember as a paradise on earth, or it's a future that we anxiously think will be a nightmare. God helps us to let go of that in the wilderness. But God also uses those desert moments in our lives for our hearts to grasp hold of Jesus. You see, our hearts are only going to let go of the past or the future if there's something more delightful to hold on to in the present. And that something or someone more delightful is Jesus. I appreciate the way that Tim Keller puts this truth. He says something like this, daily and weekly, God is teaching those he loves not to go to Jesus for what we need, but to go to Jesus as what we need. Look, Jesus is going to be our supplier of our daily needs, right? And weekly needs, like bread. But what does it look like to go to Jesus as the bread that we need? He is the bread of life. He is the manna from heaven. The only one who by knowing and being known, listening and speaking to him, by resting our futures and our pasts in him, only he can satisfy the deepest level of our heart's hungers. But how do we actually do that? I mean, how tired are we? I'm professionally religious. How tired am I to say, go feed on Jesus? And I have, what does that mean? How do we feed on Jesus? What does that look like? 
two practices that this passage suggests to us, two practices. First, we daily feed on Jesus by meditating on God's word, the Bible. Not only is Jesus described as God's word in the first chapter of John's gospel, Jesus in his own wilderness test, he actually lives by God's word daily as his bread. And further, that word meditate in the Hebrew in the Old Testament means something like, it describes a lion gnawing on a bone, chewing on a piece of meat. And that's really what we're called to do, is to chew on the words of God like their bread, like their food for our soul. And so what would it look like for me and for you to take our anxious hearts and feed them with Scripture? What would it look like? Imagine letting a mind like mine that gnaws on every possible angle of every possible thing someone could say or did say and letting that mind chew on the Bible, on a verse. I mean, meditating on what Jesus says. He says, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Mmm, right? Our, our future is ultimately, is absolutely secure in Jesus. He is our only comfort, not just in life, but in death. Second practice, we weekly feed on Jesus by resting. And this is so counterintuitive. We rest by doing nothing on purpose one day a week. <laughs> Exodus 16, 29 through 30. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. And so the takeaway is this. Don't just do something. Stand there. Or better, sit there or lay down and rest there. <laughs> it takes a lot of preparation sometimes and, and a fair amount of faith to trust that God to stop enough to not reply to the work email or to do your homework or uh, to think about and actually go and do what we would normally do on every other day of the week. Even if it's a fun activity or it's a regular activity, it's harder still for some of us to rest mentally and emotionally to let what we've done in the six days previous speak for itself, to let it stand finished, to not second guess it, to not fret over it, but to give what we have done with thanks to the world and let it rest in others' hands. But why? How can we do this with the past and even the future? Because Jesus has accomplished the work which God gave him here on earth. And that what he was doing is the heart of the Christian story. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, always walking in God's law, always keeping God's commandments, all of them. And he died on a cross, not as the perfect son, but as the grumbling people of God. He was treated as if he had grumbled against God in the desert, only to give us at his resurrection what our, heart, our hearts need and want most in our, in our most hungry moments. A person to rest secure with. That's what God gives us. And he gives us a sweet satisfaction that will one day feel filled to the full. But let me end with a story. In her memoir, Mary Carr uh, tells what is at first a very jarring story. 
When she was 14 years old, after her parents went out one, one night, Mary Carr, a self-confessed, lifelong addict, swallowed a handful of pills. And instead of getting relief that she thought she was going to get, she got painfully sick to her stomach. And then her mom and her dad come home later that night, and they find Mary in the bathroom. And they ask her, well, what's wrong? And she comes up with a lie. She says, oh, I just had something, must have been food poisoning. And her dad kind of doesn't really believe her, and he could, she can tell by the way he's looking at her. And he goes, uh, Mary, honey, do you think there's anything, any food that you can stomach tonight? And Mary says, all I can think is a plum. But of course, plums are out of season and not really available, are they? And then, that's, then a few moments later, she lays down in her bed and she goes to sleep. The next thing she knows, Mary wakes up and her dad is standing over her with a bushel of plums. He had driven all through the night across the border of Texas into Arkansas and found a roadside stand that happened to sell plums, bought the plums and drove all the way back throughout the night just to arrive at her bedside when she woke up with a bushel of plums. Just so his daughter could have something to eat. Mary Carr writes in her memoir about it. But it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck. And the nectar runs down your chin. And then you snap out of it, or you are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand on yourself, not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody, anybody who cares enough to haul them to you. And that's how you acquire the resolution for survival that the coming years are about to demand. You don't earn it. It's given. Our hearts are so hungry <laughs> for the kind of love, that kind of love. If you, we're, our hearts are asking everyone and everything that we meet every single day, every single week, we're asking, do you love me? Do love me. And there's only one father who cares enough to give us the food that our, our sin-sick hearts can actually stomach. Jesus, the bread of life, whose broken body snaps us out of our grumbling and feeds us bite by bite, morsel by morsel, until we're filled full of promises come true. Jesus is our manna, rained down from heaven. And he's not earned. He's given. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this passage. And um, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us. Um, for some of us, this really stirred up a lot. And uh, I pray that you would help us to find ways to feed on you. And would you be, uh, would this be a reminder that you're that kind of father and Jesus, you're that kind of bread. Would you help us to carry those reminders with us throughout this week? In your name, Jesus, amen.